following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Today we'll be looking at Hebrews 4, 1 through 13. This is really the second part of what Tim started last week, and that's the second warning passage in Hebrews. So let's turn to God's Word. Therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, They shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. He again fixes a certain day, today, saying through David after so long a time, just as it has been said before, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest, so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. This is a very challenging text. Um, As I was preparing for this, one of the commentaries I read said, one of the most fascinating, enigmatic, and tightly argued sections of Hebrews runs from 4, 1 through 13. So today is going to be a challenging talk as we look at this. Now, because of uh, a main theme of rest, and there's different viewpoints on what this rest means, I wanted to read a section on a book uh, that I had to read for seminary, and I took a class just on Hebrews. And it's four views on the warning passage in Hebrews. And you had two theologians who were in the camp of Calvin and two who were in the camp of Arminius. So each wrote their viewpoint on the warning passages in Hebrews, and then the three would write a response. But the one at the very beginning, to lay a foundation so that we're all coming into this with an understanding of how we can have differing viewpoints. Certainly one of the most difficult theological exercises is finding the balance between the sovereignty of God and the free will of mankind. After nearly 1,600 years of speculation on the issues, the discussion has coalesced into two competing schools of thought, the followers of Calvin and the followers of Arminius. Both sides largely agree on the meaning of total depravity, that when a person is given a choice to accept Christ, 
that person will reject him. It is on the solution to the dilemma posed, can anyone ever be saved, that the differences emerge. For the Calvinist, there is no hope until God sovereignly acts and on the basis of his mysterious will elects some to salvation and then overwhelms them with his irresistible grace so that they choose Christ. This is where the will of mankind comes in. Those who are elect then are kept by that same power, 1 Peter 1.5, so that they are absolutely secure from falling away. For the Arminian, God still acts sovereignly, but sends his spirit who convicts every person, thus an equal opportunity convictor, and overcomes their total depravity so that they make a choice. Through foreknowledge, God knows who will choose Christ, but does not force them to do so, and on the basis of that foreknowledge predestines them to be conformed to the likeness of his son, Romans 8.29. Moreover, for the Arminian, faith decision is not a work because it is not an active agent by which we save ourselves. That's the Pelagian heresy, often erroneously attributed to the Arminian position. Rather, faith is a passive surrender to the God who saves us and an opening up of ourselves to God who works salvation in us, but it's still a free choice. This freedom then passes over into the life, life of sanctification as the Spirit continues to work in us. But we also decide for ourselves whether to let the Spirit work or live in us. Thus we can, one, backslide and at some point allow sin to crowd Christ out of our life, James 5, 19 to 20, or actively repudiate him. We'll see that later in Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. The first kind of apostate can be brought back to Christ. The second has committed the unpardonable sin and will never want to come back, nor will God ever convict that person again. The reason I wanted to read that is that as we look at one of the, the main words in this passage, rest, the way you view that may be shaped by which camp you fall into. Also, if you have brothers or sisters in Christ and they believe differently, at least you can understand why they believe what they do. <clears throat> the word rest occurs ten times in enter eight in this passage, coupled, so entering into rest. And there are three occurrences of therefore linking previous passages. The focus on this passage is not rest, but it's entering into that rest that's talked about. <clears throat> the first two verses in chapter 4 act as a transition and summarize what occurred in chapter 3, 7 through 19, and what follows in 4, 3 to 13. And it also exhorts the hearer to take action on the basis of the author's discussion. <clears throat> We look at uh, some translations have the phrase be careful or be wary instead of be fearful. But that doesn't accurately portray the seriousness of the message. The cor correct translation is let us fear. In the New Testament, this phrase usually expresses reverence and awe about God's mighty acts. It doesn't portray just caution, but rather an emotional state in which one reflects upon the awesome might of God's power. The author is exhorting the hearer to adjust their present spiritual situation and reflect on the gravity of being out of step with God's will. So we need to ask the question, what are the hearers to fear in verse 1? Contextually, it has to be entering into the rest. You want to fear that you will not enter into it. And then what does it mean to come short of? The Greek word hystereo means to lack or fall short of or fail to attain or experience for oneself. So the message here is that there's a danger 
of the hearers not entering into the rest that's promised. The question is, what does that rest mean? And in verse 2, it talks about the good news preached to us. So there's two audiences. There's the Exodus generation in the Old Testament, and there's the present, after the day of Christ. So the Israelites wanted a desert. It was the promise of entry into the promised land. For us, it's the promise of salvation through Christ. So the difference isn't in the promise, but the action taken by the hearer after hearing the word of promise. The Old Testament Exodus generation were shown to be faithless as they didn't act upon the promise in contrast to those of us who place our trust in Christ. So now let's start digging into this. What does it mean to enter God's rest? There are possible answers. The first one lines up with the position of the Arminians, and it is God's heavenly place of rest. We're talking about eternity, our salvation with God So, some may feel that the rest that's being talked about here is loss of salvation. The second one is failing to find rest in this life. We look at the Old Testament, an example of Moses. He forfeited his right to enter into rest, the promised land, due to unbelief, as seen in Numbers 20.12 and rebellion in Numbers 20.24 but yet is numbered among the righteous men made perfect in the heavenly Jerusalem. We see that later in Hebrews 12, 22 to 23. So the loss of rest now does not necessarily mean being excluded from the final eschatological rest in eternity with God. And then one use of the word rest in verse 9, it's a different Greek word. In the previous references to rest, it was talking about a cessation from activity or a rest or the idea of rest. But in verse 9, the author is using the word sabbatismos, which is the use of the Sabbath rest. And it's the only place in the New Testament that this word is used. It points back to God's original rest and speaks of what would be the ideal rest. It is Sabbath rest because the believer reaches a definite stage of attainment and has satisfactorily accomplished a purpose as God did when he finished the work of creation. It is not the believer's rest which he enters and in which he participates, but it's in God's unique personal rest in which the believer shares. Since the author of Hebrews has many references to the Old Testament, let's look at some themes of rest in the Old Testament. Genesis 1-2, chapters 1 and 2. God's Sabbath rest after six days of creation, which we just mentioned, the original language, God ceased working. It was finished. When we read that, we note that in the first six days, there was morning and evening. But on the seventh day, God rested, and there's no mention of an evening, that there's no mention of an ending of the rest that God entered into. So the rabbinical view is that the rest that God entered after creation never ceased. He had completed his work, and his rest was eternal. There's the concept of Israel's rest of entering the promised land. The word heard did not profit them. The Exodus generation, they were told the promised land, land flowing with milk and honey, because it had not united itself by faith into their hearts. They heard, but they did not act upon the message given to them. Those who heard did not take that good word and put it into action, 
and they did not take advantage of the rest that was promised them by entering into the land of Canaan. There's Israel's rest as God's covenant people. Exodus 33:14. My presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. Also in verse 1 Kings 8:56. Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he has promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he promised through Moses, his servant. And in Joshua 21, 43 through 45. So the Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they possessed it and lived in it. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, according to all that he had sworn to their fathers, and not one of all their enemies stood before them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hand, but not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All had come to pass. This rest was also available in the time of David. We see that in um, Psalm 95.7, well after the Exodus generation. Rest is also related to our faith. Faith is a God-ordained way of appropriating that which God has for the individual. In the words, for we who have believed enter that rest. He says that entering the rest is a fact which characterizes believers. And this is in accordance with the implication of the words of God. As I have sworn in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This means that we who have believed have entered the rest in accordance with God's declaration to the effect that those who did not believe will not enter into rest. The point the writer makes is that faith is a condition of entering into the rest. The words, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, assume the reader's acquaintance with the account of creation in Genesis. The rest is implied in the completion of God's work. The unbelieving generation, which came out of Egypt, did not enter into the Canaan rest, although God had provided that rest that they might have entered. So what does the author of Hebrews really mean when he talks about rest? It's used in three senses. One, peace of God. Second, promised land. And third, rest of God after creation. And rest is used so many times, so let's step through the author's thought process as he wrote this passage. First, the promise of rest still remains, but there's a danger that we'll miss out on it. Israel failed to enter into the rest of God that was referenced in Numbers chapters 13 and 14, by failing to enter the promised land. The people listened to poor advice from ten of the spies and not the good advice from, the, from Caleb and Joshua. They were barred forever from entering the rest and peace of the promised land. But even though they missed out on out, the rest remained. There was no ceasing to God's rest after creation. In Israel, under Joshua, did enter the promised land, and it could be argued that the promise was fulfilled. But it was not fulfilled. In Psalm 95, 7-11, David hears God's voice saying that if the people do not harden their hearts, they can enter his rest. Hundreds of years after Joshua, there is more to rest than just entering the promised land. And lastly, God's rest still exists today, and the promise is still open, but today does not last forever. Verse 11 clearly asserts that while physical life remains, believers must continue in faith, repentance, obedience, and perseverance. So we need to ask the question, 
what is a definitive answer on the rest? There doesn't seem to be one. If the rest lies entirely in the future, how could the present generation fall short of it? But if God rested after creation, and Genesis implies that there is an ongoing or present rest, so there's a conundrum here. And after this passage in Hebrews, the term rest does not occur again in the entire book. There are many references to entering, but not rest. However, Jesus has entered into heaven himself so that we may have confidence to enter now, according to Hebrews 19 through 25. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of son, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day draw near. This passage is crucial to understanding Hebrews and their meaning of rest. The rest for believers is surely an eternal rest, but that's not the focus of Hebrews. Whatever the rest is, it's available now and in the future when we go to heaven. We also need to understand that the Sabbath rest points back to God's original rest and needs to be understood as the ideal rest. The author is pointing to an ending of weariness and pain, which is associated with human labor. So to summarize the entire discussion that the author has on rest, the imagery of rest is best understood as a complex symbol for the whole salvation process that Hebrews never fully articulates but which involves both personal and corporate dimensions. It is a process of entry into God's presence, the heavenly homeland, we see that in Hebrews 11:16, the unshakable kingdom, seen in Hebrews 12:28, begun at baptism and consummated as a whole eschatologically. We may not be able to define exactly what rest means, but Let's look at the reasons for failing to enter into God's rest. I'm going to turn now to Psalm 95, 8-11, which is referenced in this passage. Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massa in the wilderness. When your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said they are people who err in their heart, and they do not know my ways. Therefore I swore in my anger, truly they shall not enter my rest. So we see in that passage some of the reasons for failing to enter rest. A display of lack of faith. God told them that Canaan was the promised land. And they sent out the 12 spies. And the report from, ten, from all of them was that the land was very good. But 10 of them were fearful of the giants who lived in the land of Canaan. Only Caleb and Joshua wanted to go into the land. So their lack of faith 
resulted in them not entering the promised land and entering into rest. Disobedience. Um, those under Moses failed completely of the rest and came into unbelief. And those under Joshua had, had entered into the temporal, physical, and material rest in Canaan. And that the rest under Joshua was not a complete and final one since God invited Israel into rest during David's time also. The words, there remains, is a translation of a Greek word that remains over from past times. The promise of rest had not been taken advantage of by the Exodus generation. In the second instance, the character of the rest was not final. That's when they actually moved into the promised land. So the promise of rest still holds good to the present generation. God's provision of rest implies that some will enter into it, but the appropriation of that rest is still future. Some, therefore, must enter into it. And they had hardened hearts. So what actions do we need to make sure we're doing that we can enter into God's rest as defined here? We need to have a receptive heart. Um, the gospel message, hear it and accept it, which probably in this context, everybody has already done that. Then there's obedience. When God gives us a word, do we act upon it, or do we lose faith that God is sending us someplace that either we don't think we can go, that is too hard for us? The, think of the Exodus generation. They had seen all these miracles in the time that they had left Egypt. Number one, going out of Egypt, being blessed by all the material goods. The part of the Red Sea, the destruction of the Egyptian army. God providing for them in the desert all this time, and yet they still doubted that God would take care of them when they entered the promised land. So do we have the same things happen in our lives? Does God send us someplace or give us a task and we feel, no, it's going to be too hard, we can't do that? Um, or are we faithful in trusting God's message that he gives to us in the calling on our lives? I don't think God will ever send us someplace if it's truly God's will and not equip us or give us what we need to get through that. It doesn't mean that it's going to be easy or there won't be challenges, but God is walking with us when we're walking with him. And complete the race. The words let us labor in this passage are a translation of a Greek word which means to hasten or to make haste, to exert oneself, endeavor, or give diligence. It is used in a sense that you should do your best to take care, to hurry in what you are doing. It speaks of intensity of purpose, but also intensity of effort towards the realization of that purpose. So giving your all for the task given to you. The first century Jews that this passage was written to, Messianic Jews, they were at the point of renouncing their professed faith in Messiah in returning to the sacrifices of Judaism, are being exhorted to give diligence, to take care, to exert themselves, and to hasten to enter the rest of Messiah. The readers are warned not to fall short, as did the generation under Moses. That generation died a physical death in the wilderness. And then there's a bridge, the last two verses, 12 and 13, point to the power of God's word being able to penetrate and dig out the deepest in us. And in verse 13, there's a Greek word, tetrakalisimenos. 
It's a vivid but not common word that's used in three ways. The first is talking about a wrestler, where the wrestler puts their opponent in a chokehold and they can't get away from them. So the implication here is that we can run from people. We can avoid people. We can even run from God for a period of time. But in the end, God is going to get us in a chokehold and we're going to have to look into the face of God for our lives. The second one was the flaying of animals. Hang up an animal, take the skin off, cut it open. Implication here is that we can put on this facade with other people, co-workers, people we run into. It's not our true self. That God will cut away all that facade and that fakeness and that falseness and he'll dig into the deepest depths of who we are. And the third one is sometimes when a criminal was being led to trial or execution, they would put a knife underneath their chin so they couldn't look down. They had to look in the gaze of those as they walked past or their judge or their accusers. We can kind of compile all three of those definitions. In the end, we must meet the eyes of God. We can avoid the gaze of those around us. We can hide our true nature from those around us. But we cannot hide our true selves from God. God's gaze will cut to the very core of our sin. We all need surgery. But what type of surgery? There's cosmetic surgery. In preparing this, I was online looking at some statistics. Some of the prices are a few years old. But plastic surgery, we read about people getting plastic surgery and celebrities and some of the horror stories and things that happen and maybe they're auditioning for a horror movie when they get that. But some a few examples. Women in their desire to wear narrow shoes go for pinky toe tucks at the cost of $1,000 per toe so they can wear a narrow shoe. Another one, this is only done in, I can't remember if it was Netherlands or Scandinavian country. Only one country could do it because it was illegal every place else. That eye surgeons would actually implant jewelry in your eye. I'm not making this up. I guess that raises to a whole new level the phrase, you have a twinkle in your eye. Another example. This one was quite common, American women. They said millions got this. Lip augmentation to the tune of 1500 to $3,000. But it gets better. Let's look at some of the material they used to do the lip augmentation. Silicon, not unusual. Paraffin wax. I'm hoping you stay away from sources of heat if you had that done. <laughs> Otherwise, you may get droopy mouth. Cow collagen. Hmm. Purified tissue from their own body. And here's the one that really got my attention. Purified tissue from research cadavers. Makes you want to pucker up, doesn't it? Citibank has a little saying, what's in your wallet? 
for those of us that are already married or, or we're in a serious relationship, we would probably know if our partner had that done. But for those of us that aren't or you're too young, just think about that in the future. And you may want to ask the question, what's in your lips? But men, we're not excluded from this. For between five and $10,000, we can get an instant six-pack. I'm thinking the price range is dependent on whether you're moving from a mini keg or a full keg down to the six-pack. But what they don't tell you in there is that that price only includes removal of the fat around your muscles. So anybody ever seen pictures of, I think they're called a Sharpe dog? The wrinkly one? Just think, you go get this done, you come home and, hey, hon, I lost a bunch of weight, had the procedure done, pull up your shirt to show your wife you're so proud, and she looks at you and she goes, hon, you have a huge raisin hanging around your midsection. You can't make up these crazy examples. These are real things that people do to their bodies. But let's say you need necessary surgery. An example, you go to the doctor and you're told that you have gallstones. Okay, so you go home and late night you're watching TV and commercial comes on and talking about, hello viewers in TV land, the renowned doctor so-and-so, and your first danger thought should be, if it's a renowned doctor, why he's on late night TV advertising? But he's opened up a new clinic and reduced prices for a limited time. So you're watching that, and then it comes up. For only $599, you can get your gallstones removed as an outpatient. But wait, there's more. For the first 100 callers, we'll even include anesthesia. It's like, hon, give me my phone. 1-800-ARE-YOU-CRAZY. Please don't let me be caller 101. But let's say you're a little bit more serious and you're proactive about your condition. So you want to do some research for a surgeon. So you sit down at your computer, you open up Safari, because only real computers have Safari as their browser. And you type in Google.com. Wait, how should I do this? Type in general surgeons who finished last in their class at community college. Return. I don't think that's what any of us in this congregation would be doing. Um, and if you do, please, we have prayer after the service. You can come up and we can pray for you. Um, no, if we're going to have something done to our bodies, don't we want the most experienced, highly qualified surgeon that we can find to do those procedures? True story, 2001-2004, Kyung and I and the kids stationed in Hawaii. I was on headquarters staff um, in my early 40s at the time. And bases have intramural sports. So basketball, volleyball, flag football, softball, soccer. So I got the bright idea that I'm going to play soccer. I'm playing against guys that are like half my age. It was a very humbling experience. Um, but during that season, one of the practices, as we were practicing free kicks, I felt a pop in my knee. It wasn't my ACL. It wasn't that serious. And I continued to play. 
Because guys, if, if most guys I think fall into this, into this camp, is that we only go to the doctor or the hospital if we have a limb missing or if we're unconscious and our wife drags us to the hospital. Otherwise, we don't go. Ask my wife. I don't like going to the hospital. The only caveat for me is that, and I think most folks know I suffer from kidney stones, so if I get the symptoms, I don't even hesitate. Last time she was asleep, I woke her up. Uh, I need to go to the emergency room. Why? Kidney stone. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Straight to the emergency room. You walk in, kind of hunched over. Nurse says, what's wrong? It's like, kidney stone. How do you know I've had them before? How many have you had? I'm like, I don't have enough fingers. <laughs> um, so anyway, we were then stationed in Colorado. It was time I was retiring in retirement physical, and they decided to do an MRI on my knee. So in the MRI, they found I had torn meniscus. So I had two choices. I could go to the Army Hospital or I could go to the Air Force Academy. Easy choice. I went to the Air Force Academy. Um, ended up going to the head of the orthopedic surgeon department who did all the surgeries for the athletes at the Air Force Academy. So I felt really good about going there to get my surgery done. He explained everything to me. Three small incisions, put the instruments in, put a bunch of fluid in your knee to swell up the joint, trim it up, take it out. Seven to ten days, your body will absorb all the fluid. Good to go. He did lose me at the end when he said, if you would like, we can give you a local anesthesia and you can watch the procedure while we do it. No, thank you. Just knock me out. See, what all, what all of us in this room suffer from is a heart condition. Every one of us, whether it's a minor heart condition or a major heart condition, we suffer from a heart condition. Hebrews 3.12, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But if we know that, we still have to submit to the procedure to restore and clean up our unbelieving heart. Think about a story. A man goes to the dentist to get some cavities filled. Dentist takes him into the examination room, shoots him up with the painkillers, leaves the room for a few minutes. Well, it takes effect, comes back, and he sees the guy over by the tray full of instruments. And he asks him, what are you doing? And his answer is, I'm taking out the ones I don't like. We don't tell a dentist or a surgeon how to do their procedures. If we've done our research and we trust them, we submit to it and we get the procedure done. There is only one tool that will do what's required for our heart condition, and that's scripture. The intention is to reach into our hearts and cut away the dead skin. How many times are we to forgive one another? Matthew 22, 18, 70 times 7. But in our own lives, what do we see ourselves doing? Many times we feel wronged. And I don't want to forgive that person. Or I don't want to see them. That's not what Scripture tells us that we need to do. When we're confronted with the truth of Scripture, why does it make, it, make us feel uncomfortable? Because a scalpel of God's word was cutting into an unforgiving heart. The Bible confronts us with our sinfulness. 
It exposes our selfishness. It shines a light on the dark and chain-filled corners of our soul and tells us what sin is. When we go for surgery, we're, cons- we're not concerned with the brand of the scalpel being used or the who made the instruments. We want them to be clean. That's probably the end of our concern there. Our confidence comes from who's doing the surgery, as I mentioned with my knee surgery. We want a highly skilled and experienced surgeon doing the procedure. The Bible is a scalpel. There's only one qualified to perform heart surgery on us, and that one surgeon is Jesus. See, we have a surgeon that we can have complete confidence in. He knows exactly what's wrong with me and how to fix it. He completely understands me. He sympathizes with my weaknesses. He knows what it is to be tempted because he has been tempted. He knows what I struggle with. He knows what it's like to be ridiculed, to be rejected, even by those closest to him. He knows how it feels to be wrongly accused, hurt, and insulted. See, it's easy in today's busy world to let our busyness crowd out our time with Scripture, our time with prayer, our quiet time. I think in, in the time that Chong and I have been here, probably the biggest challenge here is just stopping, just stopping and taking time to reflect and get away. But we need to let Jesus apply the word to our heart and cut out the dead and infected tissue that's there. We need to make sure that our spiritual condition is not out of place in God's order. Are we following what God has laid upon our hearts to do? See, to lack God's promise to rest means to be spiritually stranded, to be stuck in a desert between the slavery of Egypt and the promise of Canaan. When Jesus cuts away the dead skin on our heart, he doesn't want to hurt us. He doesn't want to make us suffer. He doesn't want to just cut and slash. John three sixteen and 17 a lot of times we forget the second part, that we would be saved through him. Jesus wasn't sent to destroy us or hurt us. He was sent to heal us and change our lives so we'd have a whole new heart and mind. He came to give us a new face that would reflect the joy that we should now have. He came to give us new lips that would give thanks and praise God. New feet that would walk with God. New hands that would serve others. A new mind that would be cleared of all guilt and shame of the past. And a new heart that would beat with God's love for others. I started with, after the scripture, with reading a section of this book, and I'm going to read one more section because I think it's important It doesn't matter if we are in the camp of Calvin or the camp of Arminius or in a different camp somewhere in between. This is a conclusion from the book that was written. Uh, George Guthrie wrote the conclusion. He talks about a trip to Cambridge, England. 
Well, in Cambridge, England, in the spring of 2005, I was introduced to the ministry and person of Charles Simeon, and he lived several hundred years ago. A scholar pastor who represents well and appropriate humility when dealing with our tension-filled topic of this book, and that's the warning passages of Hebrews. Simeon was Calvinistic in his theology, yet he wanted to be known as resolutely biblical, not going beyond what is clearly revealed in Scripture and not forcing texts inappropriately into systematic molds. He stated, My endeavor is to bring out of Scripture what is there and not to thrust in what I think might be there. I have a great jealousy on this head, never to speak more or less than I believe to be the mind of the Spirit in the passage I am expounding. His goal was to endeavor to give to every portion of the Word of God its full and proper force, without considering what scheme it favors or whose system it likely, it's likely to advance. Moreover, Simeon thought it a great evil when in the name of theological systems, doctrines of grace are made a ground of separation one from another. He said that in reference to truths which are involved in so much obscurity, it's those which relate to the sovereignty of God, mutual kindness and concession are far better than vehement argumentation and charitable discussion. In a memorable encounter between Simeon and the then elderly John Wesley, who was an Arminian, Simeon recalls the following conversation. Simeon, Sir, I understand that you are called an Arminian, and I have been sometimes called a Calvinist, and therefore I suppose we are to draw daggers. But before I begin to consent, uh, before I consent to begin the combat, with your permission, I will ask you a few questions. Pray, sir, do you feel yourself a depraved creature, so depraved that you would never have thought of turning to God if God had not first put it into your heart? Wesley's answer: Yes, I do indeed. Simeon. And do you utterly despair of recommending yourself to God by anything you can do and look for salvation solely through the blood and righteousness of Christ? Wesley, yes, solely through Christ. Simeon, but sir, supposing you were at first saved by Christ, are you not somehow or other to save yourself afterward by your own works? Wesley, no, I must be saved by Christ from first to last. Simeon, allowing then that you were first turned by the grace of God, are you not in some way or other to keep yourself by your own power? Wesley, no. Simeon, what then are you to be upheld every hour and every moment by God as much as an infant in its mother's arms? Wesley, yes, altogether. Simeon, and is all your hope in the grace and mercy of God to preserve you unto his heavenly kingdom? Wesley, Yes, I have no hope but in him. Simeon. Then, sir, with your leave, I will put up my dagger again. For this is all in my Calvinism. This is my election, my justification by faith, my final perseverance. It is in substance all that I hold and as I hold it. And therefore, if you please, instead of searching out terms and phrases to be ground of contention between us, we will cordially unite in those things wherein we agree. We agree. doesn't matter which camp we fall into or how you view the term of rest. Let it not be divisive among us because if scholars throughout the centuries have not come to a definitive 
definition or agreement on this. I don't think we're going to do that in 40 minutes this morning, or even if we went till Tuesday. The end of the day isn't about Calvinism, Arminianism, or any other theological camp in this passage. Neither of those were born when the author wrote Hebrews. It's about obedience and submission. It's about what's central in our life. It's about taking up our cross daily through the good and bad and walking into the promised land that God has prepared for us and entering into his rest. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Thank you.